It's an emergency no wolfy button. Tiny helpless little animal. Like a Styles. Derek's tiny helpless little animal. It's actually just Derek in his closet. <laughs> Whatever. I don't care if this house gets robbed now. I stole a lot of directorial moves from people in Teen Wolf. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by Will Wallace and Clissa Wallace. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season three, episode 13, Anchors, the opener of season 3B. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, alpha and beta. The beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't wanna be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the alpha and beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to Beacon Hills at gmail.com. This episode is titled Anchors, it was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. In this episode, Scott Stiles and Allison face the psychological aftermath of the ritual they underwent to save their parents. Stiles struggles with nightmares, dreams within dreams, and the inability to distinguish between dreams and reality. Allison experiences visions of her late psychopathic and an uncontrollable trembling that impedes her hunting skills. Scott, newly a true alpha, fights for control of the shift. Lydia and Isaac do their best to support their friends. The group benefits from the perspective of a new student, Kira Yukimura, whose father now teaches history at Beacon High. Scott's estranged father investigates Sheriff Stilinski, while Stilinski works on re-examining old cases that might have been supernatural, including the case of a young girl named Malia. Our favorite quote of this week comes from the always perfect Melissa McCall when she's talking to her son who's having a bit of a freak out around his dad and he's shifting uncontrollably. Melissa tells her son to find his anchor so he can keep the shift under control, but he tells her that Allison was his anchor, but sadly, they're not dating anymore. So Melissa tells him to be your own anchor and it works. I feel like this deserves more of a shout out than our normal favorite quotes because This is one of the quintessential Teen Wolf quotes. This is is. the kind of Teen Wolf quote that people tattoo on their bodies. That's how meaningful and resident it was for everyone. Yes. I believe it was even one of the tattoos that they offered as flash tattoos for that year at Comic-Con. That's cool. Very nice. Our honorable mention comes from Lydia when she learns that her friends are having a little bit of PTSD from their death experience the previous season when she says, well, 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 look who's no longer the crazy one. And she just eats it up because she's very happy to not be on the receiving end of this anymore. Yep. Lydia Martin and her full hair flipping joy. Oh, yes. The episode begins with an aerial view of Beacon Hills. That's a really nice effect shot. We always have to go big in our openers. Go big or go home. Now that's something you get tattooed on you. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's Jennifer Blake's favorite saying. We zoom in on Styles' bedroom where Styles is having a nightmare. We see him in his bed in the real world. And then in his dream, we see him trapped in a locker. Another great transition. Absolutely. I like all the film noir-esque lighting in both the real world and his dream. Styles pushes his way out of the locker and walks through an eerily dark version of Beacon Hills High School. In the script, Styles doesn't bang his way out of the locker. The door swings open when he snaps awake in the locker and he steps out, which I prefer the more frantic attempt to get out. It like heights the tension of the nightmare. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's a stronger start. Inside a classroom, he finds the gigantic stump of the nematon mysteriously growing out of the floor. Oh, that looks so good. And I like that traveling light along the floor, motivated by nothing but cool as shit. <laughs> so I have a question, Will. How was the nematon stump filmed? Like, first scene like this, where it changes location. Well, interesting fact about that nematon, it is not a real stump. It's actually four big pieces of hardened styrofoam and it just breaks apart and you can pick them up and walk them out, put it back together and then dress it. And there you go. You now have a, your very own nematon. That's fun. Yes, it now, is. Did they sell that as one whole piece or did they sell off pieces of that when the show ended? <laughs> I do not know. I hope they did not sell any of that because that's, that prop is too good. That's, that's too good to give up. Yeah, but do you want some, it pop it up in some other show? That's your stump. God damn it. <laughs> Vines wrap around Styles' wrist and try to pull him to the nematon. He wakes up gasping in his bed with Lydia next to him. What? I wish I could have been with a whole bunch of Stidia fans when this scene happens. But instead, you're stuck with a couple of diehard Steric fans. Worth it. In the script, Styles' wrist isn't caught by the roots. He touches the stump and wakes up again in the bed, which is way less kinky. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a huge CG person, but in this case, I feel like him being grabbed by, by the vines was worth it. Yeah, definitely. Lydia comforts him as Styles explains that his nightmare was strange, like a dream within a dream. He then grows confused by the fact that Lydia is in his bed. Before he can find out why she's there, he notices that his door has creaked open. Oh, I love that shot of the door with just the inky black beyond it. It's actually just Derek in his closet. <laughs> that would not be surprising. I think those shots we see of the door on a slightly wider lens to give it a very unsettling look. I was going to ask about that because it does look slightly warped. Yeah. Despite Lydia's increasingly panicked pleas for Styles to return to bed, he slowly approaches the door to make sure they don't get in. When he walks across the threshold, he finds himself in the preserve. Again, Styles sees the stump of the nematon and approaches it. Bright lacrosse lights illuminate and shine in his eyes. Styles tries to get himself to wake up, though it takes a moment. He eventually does, just in time for the sheriff to tell him to get his butt to school. There, Styles explains to Scott about the sleep paralysis he's been experiencing. During REM sleep, your body is essentially paralyzed as a preventative measure. That way you don't act out what you're doing in your dream. Sometimes, though, the mind can wake up before the body, causing an unsettling awareness of the body's paralysis. As they go to class together, Styles asks Scott whether he thinks the ritual could still be affecting them. I mean, Deaton told them it would be for the rest of their lives. Yeah, but he didn't think Deaton meant like for realsies. Sitting in class, Styles says he's not even sure this is real. Then he wakes up screaming in his bed. His father comes in and holds him. This is an intense moment. And I really like how Rusty Smith, our production designer, is in the dream as the teacher. It's a little clue that it's still a dream because in reality, that character is already dead, killed by the Duroc in the previous half of the season. I forgot that this part was a dream, even though I've obviously seen the episode before. It's very convincing. 
Very. It's very convincing. And also, I had not noticed that was the dead teacher. The same morning, Scott finds that when he looks at his shadow, his claws are out, even when his claws aren't actually popped out. It's a nice shot. Yeah, I love that. Very simple CGI. Isaac shows up and asks whether Scott is angry at him. Scott isn't sure how he's feeling. Isaac suggests that Scott should hit him. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Scott doesn't want to until Isaac admits that he wanted to kiss Allison. Then Scott sends Isaac flying into the wall, which Melissa does not appreciate. The perfect Melissa McCall. I hate this scene. Not the Melissa part, but the Scott throwing Isaac into a wall part. Yeah, the dialogue is cute, but they could have done something better with that than Scott just throwing him into a wall. Maybe something that doesn't make Scott seem like a complete asshole. Don't act like you forgot about his origin story, Scott. It was bad enough when Derek hurt Isaac, but at least there was a purpose to that. It wasn't just Derek taking out his frustration on Isaac. He was misguided, for sure, but... He was trying to protect Isaac. You really can't make that argument here with Scott. Yeah, they were just going for like a kind of cheap laugh. As Styles gets ready for school, he finds that he can't read the cover of his history textbook. The words have become nonsensical. The effect soon goes away and Styles is able to read again, but he's unsettled by it nonetheless. You can tell the bit with Scott and Styles before this was a nightmare and not reality because Styles is only wearing a t-shirt, nothing over it. Now things are back to normal with Styles wearing a hoodie over his shirt. Layers. Always layers. Stolinski tries to check in with how Styles is doing, but Styles insists he's fine and it was just a nightmare. He changes the subject to the box of files Stolinski is holding, which reads, Sheriff Station, do not remove. Dead dove, do not eat. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I mean, how could it not? That show is perfect, folks, for three seasons. I think it's kind of like a funny thing to put on there. I also imagine like that's just someone got really excited with a label maker and stuff. And you see that on like their stapler and stuff too. I would love that if that was just like a little detail in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I love that Styles calls him out and Stolinski says, that's true unless you're the actual sheriff. And he has that Styles needs to get his butt to school. Stay out of his business. I like the nerd poster behind Styles. It's a cool poster. I feel like they really nailed the like teenage bedroom look for the characters, the male characters at least, except for there'd probably be way more laundry on the floor. Allison also leaves for school, but when she gets into the elevator at her apartment building, the temperature suddenly drops. The doors open and she finds herself at the Beacon Hills Memorial Hospital instead of the apartment building's main floor. I've always liked those emergency light pods that they have on the floors. It's a cool look. It is. Behind Allison, as she emerges from the elevator, we see a flash of another Allison, one who looks armed and dangerous. I love that shot. Yeah, that's excellent. I love whenever you guys just embrace full horror. It was definitely one of our strong suits. And again, in this scene, I like the moving light along the floor. Yeah, I love how it makes the shadows shift very eerie. Absolutely. It's probably one of my favorite things about 3B is it's the season that feels most horror-esque. Allison goes into the morgue and looks inside one of the cadaver storage units. It seems to extend into infinity so that Allison can't even see the end of it. To Allison's shock, Kate comes screaming toward her, crawling her way through the metal shaft towards Allison, who slams the door shut. I wonder if this was as fun for Jill Wagner to film as I'm imagining it would be. Probably not, but it looks great. Just imagine probably getting pretty banged up trying to do that. Allison runs away, only to find herself bursting into the high school in time to hear the bell ring. Lydia notices that Allison seems out of it. This wasn't the end of the first act in the script, but they must have thought it was a dramatic enough moment to end on. Meanwhile, Scott arrives on his motorcycle. 
Isor seems a little bit rude to take up a whole parking spot with this bike. Yeah, they must have bike racks there. Are there motorcycle bike racks? I mean, it's not a real motorcycle. It's a dirt bike. It's got bike right there in the title, Will. <laughs> yes, yes. Scott catches his own reflection in his shiny bike helmet and sees that his eyes are red. He shakes his head and makes the effect go away. When he shook his head like that, I really wanted it to do that sound effect they do in cartoons when characters are shaking their heads back and forth. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that would have been super fun. Yeah, that would have been great. Scott then notices that his shadow looks like a hulking wolf man. This is one of my absolute favorite shots in the whole show. It looks so good. Yeah, that shot is great. Scott stumbles down the stairs, staring at his shadow. He looks like he's doing some kind of avant-garde tap dance. (laughs) (laughs) He did it before the Joker. Exactly. Yeah, he's so like light on his feet and kind of like shifting his weight from one foot to the other that I feel like you could just put music and tapping noises over that and it would Mm -hmm. absolutely look like a singing in the rain-esque interpretive dance. Styles notices Scott's expression. Lydia and Allison join them as Lydia announces that all three of them are seeing things. I like Lydia's shirt. Teen Wolf fashion blogs have told me this is a hinge mixed media sweater in cherry blossom, although I can't find a primary source for that. At the sheriff's station, Stalinsky revisits some old cases, including a car accident that took place on a full moon. In the script, this was the original end of the act one. Also, the flashbacks to the wrecked minivan aren't in the script. It must have been added in a later version. I like the flashbacks. I like that they're kind of interspersed with the crime scene photos. Mm -hmm. So like when it starts to move, it kind of surprises you a little bit because you were just looking at a still. Yeah. I actually kind of like that they changed where the act break was. This might seem a little bit more dramatic, but I like that the act break ends on one of our central characters and their struggles rather than the the subplot of the sheriff just looking at old cases. Yeah. I agree. Back at school, Styles asks Lydia to stop enjoying his, Scott's, and Allison's struggles. I think Lydia deserves a little gloating. They were not great to her when she was, quote, the crazy one in season two. No, they weren't. In the script, Lydia has a little extra snark that must have been cut for time. And Allison insists they're not crazy. Lydia responds with hallucinating sleep paralysis. Yeah, you guys are fine. Me, I woke up, did some yoga, got a latte, total number of psychotic visions, zero. Burn. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, it was fun. In history class, a new teacher, Ken Yukimura, introduces himself. Tom Choi in the house. Mr. Yukimura also introduces his daughter, Kira, saying that the other students might not know her since she hasn't mentioned any friends from school or brought any home. Kira, sitting in the back row, head desks. I love this bit so much. It's such a great introduction to Kira. She is my absolute favorite character. I don't think I've ever said that on the podcast. So this is new information. Kira is my absolute favorite character. Yes. Also, I like her ring. Oh yeah, I never noticed that ring before. It's very cool. Yeah, me neither. We were distracted by the head desk and how great her hair is. She's so cute. And Scott is so cute noticing her being so cute. Aww. <laughs> I ship it, guys. I ship it Aww. hard. Also, just like her dad. I can't even tell if it's like directed, then go befriend my daughter or Kira, I'm going to force everyone to acknowledge you. You be friends with them. Either way, <laughs> it's cute. He's a good dad. In art class, Lydia notices Allison's handshake as she tries to paint. Allison says it's been happening for weeks. 
ever since the ritual. She drops the paintbrush onto the red paint, causing a red splatter that makes her flashback to Kate's death. Isaac notices too. Okay, is this just something they do or is it a class? Why is no one else in the room except for these three? The others overheard part of the conversation and went, nope, not today. They're doing it again. They're having weird stuff. (laughs) Between classes, Styles and Scott discussed the reactivated supernatural beacon. Styles finds he can't get into his locker because the numbers on his lock have turned into inscrutable symbols. I want one of those. I was going to say that was designed just for you, Kate. It absolutely (laughs) was. Scott eavesdrops on Kira and her dad. That's one of his favorite moves when it comes to girls. And Ken is commenting that he thought Kira wanted to be noticed. Kira says she could also be noticed if she set herself on fire. (laughs) Oh, she's great. But then she'd be dead, Ken points out. Yes, father, you've just proved my point. Styles' lock goes back to normal, just in time for him to notice that Scott's eyes are glowing red. Since Scott can't control them, Styles helps him sneak into an empty classroom to avoid being seen like that. It's so funny how he throws his arm over Scott yeah. <laughs> and drags him into a classroom. I just I want him to look around at everyone in the hallway and be like, just two bros broing it out in an empty classroom together. His whole move with Scott is very much like they're being chased by paparazzi, but there's no one there at all. Right. <laughs> Panicked and wolfing out uncontrollably, Scott digs his claws into his own palms to make himself shipped back. Man, Derek's an asshole, but like he was right about some stuff. Yeah. It's an emergency no wolfy button. Like how chemistry labs have emergency eyewash stations, the other classrooms should have emergency blood washing stations. It's a bloody school, guys. That it is. They had to put in those blood wash stations because Slappy doesn't work there anymore. R.I.P. Real hard to find good help that doesn't die these days. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. I just imagine like a science class coming in and then just immediately the teacher just turns around and is like, nope, we're, we're working outside. We're working <laughs> like, outside nope, today. They're doing kids. it again. Weird stuff. Going on a field trip, guys. Field trip. We're getting ice cream. Styles tells Scott that what's happening to them isn't just in their heads. It's real. And it's getting worse. For instance, in dreams, you can't read. Sometimes you can. If you learn how to lucid dream, you can. Lucid dreaming is dope. Styles finds more and more that he can't read. He's not sure he's ever really waking up. And even now, he can't read a thing. Maybe he just walked into like a Russian classroom by accident. (laughs) I feel like this season, and we are only one episode in, Dino is like, I'm going to out Bois Hans Zimmer. Bois. Bois. (laughs) Lydia takes Allison out into the preserve to try to help her regain her archery skills. But Allison isn't sure it'll help. People are still second guessing how smart Lydia is like three seasons in. Sad. Learn to read patterns, y'all. I know, right? Lydia, tell her to think about you naked. That works every time. That would make my whole life. I believe I've read that fic. <laughs> if you could um, send me that link, I would appreciate it. Lydia tells Allison to try the Mongolian draw. Allison surprised at Lydia's knowledge, prompting Lydia to explain that, you know, she reads. In Mongolia, they have their version of X Games, which is just awesome archery and horseback riding and falconing. It's f-ing incredible. You can watch videos of it on YouTube. I highly recommend Lydia tells Allison to close her eyes and visualize hitting the target. When Allison does close her eyes, she instead sees a woman running through the woods. We put a lot of smoke in that forest to get those rays. Filled with fog, a classic Teen Wolf look. I believe a classic Teen Wolf look is very hairy, wearing basketball shorts on top of a van. That is OG Teen Wolf look. I don't like to be reminded that Teen Wolf is based on that Teen Wolf because... (laughs) 
It is so bad and homophobic. It is It is not a good movie. It's a really bad movie that is also homophobic. I'm not even saying it's bad because it's homophobic, although that is bad. But it's also separately a terrible movie. It is not good, but that's okay. Because then Jeff Davis came along and was like, I got you, bae. We're going to turn this all around. Imagine him just saying it to like a VHS cover in like a blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> he just picks it up and he's like, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. After seeing the woman running through the woods, Allison tells Lydia to wait where she is. I love how Lydia says, are you serious? As a statement instead of a question. She knows the answer, so she's not asking. She's just making a point. <laughs> Why is she even still friends with these people? Science doesn't know. Allison hears Kate saying her name. When you watch this scene with headphones on, you can hear the sound traveling from one side to the other. Oh, is it binaural? I don't think it is, but it is still awesome. Allison turns around and suddenly it's nighttime. Kate is moving towards her in strange, disjointed movements. Oh, love those shots. They are very spikely. Allison shoots an arrow at Kate, only to have Isaac catch it in his hand before it can impale Lydia. Allison has woken up from her hallucination just in time to see what she's done. Good thing Isaac was stalking them. No kidding. Isaac reports what happened with Allison to Scott, who asks why Isaac was there at all. When Isaac doesn't have much of an answer, Scott sends him flying into the wall again. And again, Melissa does not approve. I believe she reminds him that the house does not have supernatural healing abilities like they do. Mm-hmm. Poor single mom there. Styles brings a bouquet of flowers to the sheriff's station for them to take to his mother's grave, though commenting that the last time they did so, someone stole the flowers. Slinsky says it's the gesture that matters. He also explains that he's digging back into old cases with his new illuminated perspective. Illuminated. That's an upcoming episode title, folks. Styles clarifies that Stilinski isn't revisiting old cases for supernatural connections, is he? I mean, that's exactly what he's doing. Obviously. Why are you being up to, Styles? There's one case Stilinski can't get out of his head, which was part of his first official duty as sheriff. He had to tell a man that his wife and two daughters had died in a car accident. But as far as law enforcement could tell, one of the daughters' bodies was dragged away by Gaetis. Given that the accident happened on the night of the full moon, however, Stilinski thinks it could have been supernatural. The flashback we see here of Stilinski at the crash site isn't in the script we have and must have been added later. Styles asks where all the files are going. Stolinski says they should discuss that. Later, Styles goes into class and tries to get a classmate to let him have his normal seat. She signs to him in ASL, which he doesn't understand, so he sits down elsewhere. Okay, but is this his normal seat or assigned seating? Because, like, if it's just his normal seat, you need to get over it, dude. I agree. Soon, Styles notices how silent and still all of his classmates are, as is Coach Finstock standing at the head of the class. Coach is looking real creepy right now. <laughs> yeah. And also it's just such a red flag for a coach to be quiet. Yeah. Give it time. Yeah. Yes. And have like a serious look on his face. Yeah. Very unusual and suspect. Finstock starts signing too. The same sequence of signs over and over. It's too bad Gage Glightly was already gone at this point. At HowlerCon, she said that she knows ASL. Oh, I didn't know that. With increasing urgency, all the students join Finstock in signing the same signs at Styles. He hears a high-pitched ringing in his ears before he suddenly wakes up at his desk. He really is in Finstock's class, and the ringing was Finstock's whistle. Ah, Styles is wearing that infamous Cougar Den shirt. Finstock had apparently just asked him whether he was paying attention. Styles says he is now. Finstock tells him to stop reminding Finstock of why he drinks every night. <laughs> 
Scott looks concerned, not about Finstock's drinking, and informs Styles that he wasn't actually asleep. Styles looks down at his notebook and finds that he's written wake up over and over in different patterns. That's so cool. Yes, it is. Major all work and no play energy. Yeah, Scott still should have helped a bro out, tapped him, or tried to snap him out of it or something. He apparently just watched Styles do all of that. That happens a lot on this show. People just watching other people do weird things. <laughs> what you don't see is like the previous page it said Styles Stalinsky dash hail Mr. Styles hail <laughs> don't look at that Scott this is research hail Stalinsky question yeah, mark Stalinsky <laughs> the group tries to figure out what will happen to them because of their symptoms Isaac says such people are locked up for being insane he and Styles bicker with Styles asking if Isaac is still milking his difficult childhood Styles no bad okay I kind of like how much Styles hates Isaac though he's jelly yeah because of how much of Scott's attention Isaac gets now yeah exactly it's like it's bad enough when he had to split him with Allison now he just lives in with Isaac too Kira approaches the table saying she overheard them talking because and this is true you talk loud Yes, none of you know how to whisper. Kira drops some knowledge about the concept of bardo, the in-between state that exists between life and death. The symptoms that the group have been discussing occur in bardo, different progressive states featuring hallucinations and visits from deities, including wrathful ones. In other words, demons. The final state in this progression is death. Yeah, but she says it like so happy. It's really cute. And the final thing is death. She's very happy-go-lucky. In the script, Kira drops a little more knowledge when she mentions the short story, The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, in which a soldier being hung imagines himself escaping to freedom, all within the few seconds it takes for him to drop from the bridge and his neck to break. Also, the scene continues after Kira tells the gang that death waits at the end of the progressive stages of Bardo. It continues with, Kira smiles. They don't smile back. Confused, Kira watches their oddly fearful reactions. Scott leans in to whisper to the others, because apparently that's something they can do. Mm-hmm. I think she wants to study with us. Allison replies, are we actually studying? Scott says, she's just trying to make new friends. Isaac says, half of us here have at some point tried to kill the other half. She should make other friends. <laughs> oh, Isaac, you're so right. Oh my God, he makes a solid point though, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Reluctantly, Scott nods. Following their lead, he gathers his things. Kira watches the group rise from the table and offers a friendly smile. Bye. She sells them. Instead of leaving, however, Scott and his friends move to another table. Aw. That's oh. so shitty. What the hell? Away from Kira. Pulling his chair up to the new table, Scott can't help but throw a guilty glance back. Alone, Kira focuses on the work in front of her, desperately trying not to look utterly humiliated and rejected. That's so bad. I remember, I'm really glad that was cut. I remember yeah. us breaking that in the room, and we thought it would be very sad, but also kind of funny that if they just come and move to but I don't know, like that's from, too shitty of them. It's it is, it's really it's, it is a little out of like, character. From a practical perspective, they're still sometimes trying not to be completely suspicious, right? Yeah. I mean, Styles did his best getting Scott out of the hallway when his eyes were glowing red. Yes, it was an awkward exit, stage left, but I don't know. I feel like doing that would still, it's so shitty that I almost feel like it would be suspicious. Like, oops, she overheard us talking about that secret shady shit that we're not supposed to share with anybody. Yeah, I think it could still work because I like that line a lot from Isaac and I feel like he has a good point that she's probably better off not hanging out with them. 
Yeah. So I think Scott could just thank her and then get up and lead them back into the school. Not just a different table away from her, but be like, okay, we're going to leave now. But at least thank her for the information so not to seem like a complete jerk. Yeah. And so she can still feel like let down because she was trying to like join the conversation, but they weren't outright rude to her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I agree. that was just a very like mean girls thing to do is to get it, 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 yeah. table. Can't sit with us. <laughs> I like how in this script it says Scott leans in to whisper to the others, but then he's just like, I think she's trying to make friends. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> no right. I just imagine her like awkwardly standing there sort of having this conversation and whispers between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not total. Clearly it has to be loud enough for everyone to hear because Allison weighs in too. It'd be funny if you just, if like this scene kind of started with Kira coming out into that seating area and kind of looking around, you know, like where's she going to sit and sees how everyone on one side and like our, our gang <laughs> is on the other side. Everyone's like, we do not sit near them. That's I would just love how that it works. So and there's just empty much. tables between them and she just wanders that way. It'd just yeah. be a fun little visual cue. That would be <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Amazing. Scott and Styles turned to Deaton after school. Deaton says it sounds like Styles' subconscious is trying to communicate with him. So he asked Styles to recreate the signs he saw in his dream. In the script, Deaton explains that they learned a little sign language in college, teaching it to chimpanzees. What were you studying in schools? Well, I guess, is that like the vet thing? Oh, no, yeah. I don't know. I that feel weird. There would be no practical applications for that in his actual work. because well, we don't know what he never... majored in. Maybe he got, has a degree in... Animal psychology? That seems more like, yeah, if you're doing, like, animal research. Neurology, maybe? Yeah. In primates? That's super specialized. Right. He was teaching that chimp to give Jane Goodall a message. What message? To beware and watch her back. Okay. She knows what she did. (laughs) And continuing on, Dean translates the message as, when is a door, not a door. Styles is not impressed. He's like, Dean, are you the one in my dreams delivering cryptic messages? That's the kind of shit I get from you. He does specialize in cryptic. Scott knows the answer to the riddle when it's a jar. So just imagine Styles just knocking his head against the wall at that. We get a little callback to Kira's head desk. Yes. Right. Deaton explains that during the ritual, Scott, Styles, and Allison opened a kind of door in their minds. They went from the unconscious to the super conscious. For their own safety, the three of them need to close the doors in their minds right away. Having an open door into their minds is just not good. Have you ever seen Being John Malkovich? As Scott and Stiles leave the clinic, they encounter Stalinsky, who says he needs their help. Or rather, Scott's help. You know, with raw stuff. I would have really liked if Sheriff just put up his hands and did a little raw motion. (laughs) You know. Like Allison did when they were getting their photo booth pictures. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I just noticed how Styles averts his eyes when Stalinsky says that it's Scott's help that he needs. It's subtle, but interesting given what Styles told Scott in season two about not being able to help like Scott and the other werewolves can. I hadn't even noticed that. That's a fantastic cool detail. That hurts. Stalinsky asks for Scott's help tracking the body of a young girl whose family died in a car accident. He suspects that a werewolf, not an animal, dragged her body away. If he's right, there's a killer out there. It seems like her body would just be bones by now. Like eight years is a long time to be out in the elements. I doubt he'd be able to track her scent at this point in time. While Stalinsky asks a few questions of Henry, the young girl's father, 
Scott and Stiles sneak in the back door so Scott can get Malia's scent. They're interrupted by the family dog, a very good boy named Apollo. Stiles tells Scott to glow his eyes at Apollo and assert himself as the alpha to get Apollo to leave them alone, but Scott says he can't because he doesn't have control right now. That's a Target shirt Stiles is wearing, the whole, like, let's sell this, like, adults, rock, paper, scissor. I know because I have the same one. (laughs) Apollo starts barking at Scott and Stiles. Doesn't Scott work at a vet? Feels like he should have better dog handling skills, even outside of his wolfiness. Yeah, you would think so. In the script, Stiles sends his dad multiple texts that he and Scott are trapped by the dog. When Tate notices the cell phone vibrating again, Slinsky tells him that his son has behavioral issues. Oh, oh my God. It's just like whenever he was blowing up Danny's phone. Right? Yeah. I actually would have liked that being in there because even if it's obviously intended for comedic purposes, it would be at least an oblique reference to his ADHD, which at this point in the story just disappears. Yeah. Henry yells at Apollo to shut up and Apollo leaves the room. Oh, daddy yelled at me. That's mean. Whatever. I don't care if this house gets robbed now. I did my job. He told me to shut the hell up. I'm going to go sit in my doggy bed. Enjoy a bone and think about how the intruders are going to kill him in his sleep. Can you tell, like, Kate and I like to give animal voices and thoughts? <laughs> yes. We it's do good stuff. with our dogs. Stalinsky informs Henry that his family's deaths could have been murders and not accidental deaths. But Henry doesn't want to reopen that wound, so he tells Stalinsky to leave. Listen, if you need someone to talk to, there is someone in this town whose whole family was murdered. Wow. Wow, indeed. Stolinski thanks Scott for trying, even though he couldn't get the scent because it was so long ago. After Stolinski drives away, Stiles explains that he thinks his dad just wanted to close one more case while he's still sheriff. When he learns that his own father is investigating Stiles' dad for an inability to close cases and looking into the possibility of impeachment, Scott angrily confronts Raphael. This seems like a weird job for the FBI. I thought so too. The FBI does investigate potential corruption in local law enforcement under the Hobbs Act. But he hasn't said anything about potential corruption. He made it sound like it's an ineptitude thing, which seems odd for the FBI to investigate given that he's an elected official. I mean, honestly, our elected officials are inept like all the time. True. I think Beacon Hills would be an extreme case because it's chock-a-block with unsolved mysterious deaths. But is it? I mean, most of the deaths look like animal deaths. You can't get mad police for not solving animal deaths. That's not their job. Right. The Hailfire case happened before Stalinsky was sheriff, and then he solved it during his time as sheriff. It was in the paper that Kate did it. The Canama murders were solved since they were attributed to Matt. With Henry's family, I know Stalinsky wants to solve it because he suspects it was a werewolf, but by all appearances, that was a car crash followed by an animal attack. The problem might be that we have the sheriff mentioning unsolved cases when talking to Styles, but then the only example we got was the Canama Crossing. So it's hard to see where Raphael is coming from. Maybe if we knew more about those cases, it would make more sense. Some might have looked like animal attacks, but maybe not all of them. For instance, think about the video store murder. They considered that an animal attack. Remember, that's when the whole cougar thing happened. But there's photographic evidence of a humanoid creature. So that wouldn't make Stolinski look very good. I don't know. If Stolinski did anything with that, he would just look like spooky Mulder. (laughs) It'd be like ruling a death by Bigfoot. That would actually be way more suspicious to the feds. Animal death was the most rational conclusion. I think that they should have either said that the investigation was due to perceived corruption for other reasons, 
or that there were a bunch of other murders that looked nothing like animal attacks, but we don't have that information. So it feels weird. Yeah, you're right. The information we have is vague. And speaking of Bigfoot, we will not besmirch his name. Everyone knows Bigfoot is very peaceful. I would not kill anyone. The example we got at the sheriff's station was the Canima crossing the road. That just sounds like a crazy person complaining. So everything we know of either seemed like hallucinations or animal attacks. Maybe they should have alleged that there was evidence of a major drug problem in Beacon Hills that the sheriff's department wasn't taking seriously or something. Like, that's why there's all these bizarro things that people are seeing. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting, actually, Calissa, if they were like, clearly there's a huge problem with hallucinatory drugs in your town and you're just not doing anything about it. But anything that actually seems to line up with what we know of Beacon Hills to this point, even the Duroc murders, which are the only ones I think that we know of that look like unsolved murders, Slinsky would have a very easy answer to that. We called you guys and y'all didn't solve it. We recognized a serial killer pattern really quickly, followed procedure by calling a federal agency. We can't be blamed if the FBI can't find the serial killer they came into town to find. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. It might have worked better if there had been something more suspicious with the Duroc case, like they had identified Jennifer as the killer, but it didn't add up for Raphael because he doesn't know the supernatural part of the story. Or it could have been that the focus of the investigation was Styles. Like Styles keeps showing up at all these crime scenes. That to me indicates that he could be involved in some criminal activity that his father's covering up. That would be a clear-cut case to investigate possible corruption. That was brought up in season two already, and all that happened there was that the Whitmores moved out of the country. I feel like that could have been interesting. A local pillar of the community looked into Stalinsky being corrupt because of Styles showing up at crime scenes, and it wasn't exactly resolved. That guy just moved his family out of the country. Suspicious. (laughs) Later that night, Melissa returns for work while Scott and Raphael are mid-argument and takes Scott's side. But when she sees Scott's claws come out, she ushers him out of the room and tries to help him calm down. Scott isn't sure how to control the shift since his anchor was Allison and he doesn't have her anymore. And she's booning my friend, maybe, (laughs) who also I might want to (laughs) bang. And speaking of, in the script, we actually see the Isaac eavesdropping on this entire scene. What? Yeah, I was surprised to see that. What a stalker. Yep. He'd just be stalking both of his crushes. (laughs) Melissa tells Scott that he'll fall in love again. But in the meantime, he has to be his own anchor. I don't know, Mom. You've been single since Dad left. Uh, She probably had a varied and exciting love life pre-husband and kid. I, I know she's a young mom, but still. Absolutely, she did. Later that night, Scott goes to get Styles and tells them they're going to find a dead body. Roll reversal. You'd love to see it. Meanwhile, Alice and Isaac get hot and heavy in Allison's bed. Isaac reassures her that Scott is okay with them being together. Allison is reassured until she notices something strange around Isaac's neck. Suddenly, Kate appears behind him. The thing around his neck is a garrote, which Kate tightens and she suggests that she and Allison do him together. Yeah, that sounds like Kate. This is such a bizarre scene, in a good way. It's so good. And like you said, Calissa, it does sound like Kate. I mean, she does love teenage boys for a given value of the word love. Shudder. This is me shuddering. Just as Allison pulls out a ring dagger, she wakes up gasping. Yeah, we know where she got that ring dagger off Isaac. (laughs) When is that ongoing joke going to die already? Uh, Never, as long as ring daggers and Isaac are on the show. To her horror... 
Allison finds that she really does have a ring dagger under her pillow. Lydia lies asleep next to her, surrounded by studying materials, unaware of Allison's nightmare. Missed opportunity for her. I've been dreaming about Lydia there. Searching out in the woods, Styles gets startled by a coyote's howl, jostling Scott and causing him to drop his phone in a puddle. Luckily, it still works. I don't mind this product placement. I think it works. It's one of the better ones. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Teen Wolf's product placement, where if you make it about a character trait, it's fine. It works much better. And in this case, it's that Styles is a flailer. Yeah. The original version of the scene had Styles knocking Scott's phone into the puddle. And when Scott looked at him annoyed, Styles said, Reese Cup. <laughs> That's a joke, people. He that is, is a joking. Joke. That is a joke, guys. But that would be funny. <laughs> Styles apologizes to Scott, saying he hates coyotes because they always sound like they're mauling a tiny, helpless little animal. Like a Styles. Derek's tiny, helpless little animal. They arrive at the location of the Tate car accident with a vehicle in question still laying there in the woods. Scott is surprised they wouldn't have moved it, but Styles says it was probably just too much of a pain in the ass to tow out. I don't think that's a thing. I don't think they could just say, nah, don't want to move this wrecked vehicle from the preserve. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe Agent McCall does need to be there. Yeah, that's super weird. They find huge claw marks on the side of the car, leading them to believe Stolinsky's theory that it was a werewolf. See, even when it's clearly a werewolf to us, it still looks like just an animal attack to everyone else. I mean, nobody would look at the claw marks and think, oh, that's a serial killer that they should be investigating. Unless they think it's a Freddy Krueger. All right, guys, we got a Freddy Krueger on our hands. I repeat, we have a Krueger. Not again. Did you say cougar? (laughs) Cougar, I think, is a very much a problem around here. I'm just imagining a cougar with a sweater on. <laughs> a little one of those little fedoras running yeah, around. It's a little, little fedora and a sweater. <laughs> one, two waffles coming for you. I'm your boyfriend now, Scott. <laughs> they find a doll at this scene, which startles the hell out of them by having a voice box. I'm Talkie Tina, and I'm beginning to hate you. Oh, I'm obsessed with that episode. Scott sees a coyote's eyes in the darkness and follows them as the coyote runs. Oh, great build up to the big jump. No more loping, y'all. Nope, we are beyond that. They noped the lope. I feel like we should have a t-shirt that we sell that says that. Nope, the lope. Nope, the lope. Yeah, no, that's good. Scott's eyes glow red. He jumps over a huge chasm to catch up to the coyote. When he flashes his eyes at the coyote. (laughs) Can we just say Coyote. Coyote. You get it to stop growling at him. The coyote voice like says it so many times in the Sims. <laughs> he goes quiet. Aw. How dare. You're being so mean to me. Coyote says. The coyote's eyes glow unnaturally blue. The coyote is a shifter. Scott asks if the coyote is Malia. The coyote takes off in response. No bitch. Bye. Malia of who? Scott texts Derek for help. Unfortunately for him. Derek is strung up alongside Peter being tortured. Aw, one of those two people doesn't deserve this. (laughs) (laughs) Derek glares at Peter and reminds him that this situation is all his fault. And the episode ends there. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Anchors. And now we're about to dive into spoilers. Not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all the excellent stories to come... Jump out now, and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. 
be. Get rid of it. Me? Yes, you. Glow your eyes at it. Something. Be the alpha. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Kevin Mock, who edited three episodes of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. How did you get into editing? See, I've always been interested in editing. When I was a kid, I was really into filmmaking and I had a grandfather who used to make a lot of Super 8 films, but like of the family and things like that. And he would cut them on his kitchen table. And I remember him like splicing them there and doing that. And so from an early age, I was always like, oh, this is fascinating. And um, I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then I realized that editing was a way into that. And so I did a lot of that in college. And then a lot of that uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles. Very nice. On social media, you mentioned being invited to the Monkey Shines cutting room. How did that come about? Oh, yeah. So I, um, when I was growing up, my neighbor, when one of my closest friends was a kid named Cam Romero, and his dad is George Romero, and his parents were divorced. And so he didn't live with his dad. He lived with his mom. But when his dad like would take him out to do stuff or do things like that, I would get to tag along often. And when we were about 15, we were in high school, and one night Cam's like, hey, my dad's looking at a cut of Monkey Shines. You want to come watch it with me? And I was like, yeah. So we went and it was it was Cam and myself and then three people that worked at the local PBS station. And we sat down and we watched the cut with the editor and with George Romero. And then we all just talked about it. We talked about like what we liked or didn't like or what, what jokes we responded to or what things felt scary or what we were offended by or things like that. And to me, that was like my first, like, oh, this is what post-production is. This is like, this is how creative it can be. And, and then to have seen then the, that film, then when it, the finished film was different, was fascinating. And, and I have to say that all of the things that I voted for <laughs> didn't happen. I was far more in love with the campier, weirder, more extreme elements of the thing. I was like, I thought that was great. And they're like, yeah, we're probably going to cut that out. <laughs> so, wow. That's such a cool story. Though. That is yeah. incredible. So that got me hooked. Yeah, that's when I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. So George Romero didn't want some campy stuff in there. It's like, I've seen that movie, Martin. It's pretty campy in places and it's got some weird stuff in there. So I think they were working for Orion as a studio and I think oh, the studio okay. was fighting back on a lot of that stuff. And so gotcha. I, I think what I saw was probably closer to what he was imagining and then he was trying to steer it towards. And I think, honestly, I think Cam and I were there because he was like, well, I need a couple of teenagers to know, like, I can't, I shouldn't trust a couple of PBS executives. I should probably <laughs> also get right. some teenagers in there that, you know, will tell me what teenagers think. And um, <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. That's Teenagers right. like it weird. So yes, I love it weird. That's yeah, the note. Yeah. Well, that's Teen, Teen Wolf <laughs> likes it weird for sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of, how did Teen Wolf come into your life? Uh, Alyssa Clark. I had been an editor on America's Next Top Model. And so had Alyssa. And so had Gabe Fleming. So, but but basically I've known I've known Alyssa for ages. We'd worked on a, a wrestling reality show before that. So I knew she was working on the show. And then she was starting to do more writing. Um, which is an unusual move to go from editor to writer. And so I think because she was doing less, they needed some help in post-production just to pick up the slack when she got pulled back into the room. So, um, so that, so she called me up and I happened to be available at the time. So it worked out great. So how does editing a reality show like America's Next Top Model compare to editing a scripted show like Teen Wolf? It's quite different. When you're editing a reality show, you're looking for, um, it's like writing a first draft of a script. You know, you're really trying to like 
what's the story and who, you know, and what can I say to build up that story? And you're looking for those big moments and you're really confined and you're really driven by the footage. When you're editing a scripted show, it's more about fine tuning. It's more about like, is the tone right? You know, looking at the fine details of different, you know, like on a reality show, you don't get different takes. You get one, that's what happened. And you're either going to use it or you're not. And on a television show, you're going to compare like, oh, this performance here and this performance there. How subtle does it need to be? How how much do I need to land it? How much, uh, who is my sympathy with in the scene? So it's um, it's it's a very different skill set, but it's just as difficult. Very cool. So can you talk us through the process of editing an episode of Teen Wolf? Well, and then this is interesting too, is that Teen Wolf was a little bit different than most scripted shows. I'd come from some network scripted shows before Teen Wolf. I'd been on uh, Chuck and on a show called Cult. And those shows, you have a really rigid sort of schedule. And the editors kind of, once you finish the cut, it's kind of out of your hands a little bit. Like you you go to the mix and things like that. But, but basically the workflow for Teen Wolf was set up very much like a reality show because a lot of the people on Teen Wolf had come from other MTV reality shows. So a lot of them had come from, I think they'd come from making the band. So they were used to working in a more reality uh, way, which is a bit more of like hunting and pecking and finding in the footage. And then you take a little bit more ownership in your episode. And, um, and I like that. And so it was, that was the nice thing about Teen Wolf is that like you were putting in the sound effects and you were doing a, a lot of the work with the composer to make sure that that was working and you get involved in color timing. Like the editors were very, very involved on Teen Wolf. And I was super impressed by that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Teen Wolf character? I like Styles. <laughs> I like Lydia too. Uh, maybe Lydia. Everyone, everyone probably picks Styles. He's a pretty popular pick. That, a, that yeah. is a pretty yeah. common answer. Yeah. They can't fault that. He's my favorite too. Yeah, you can. I mean, how are you going to fight with that? Yeah, but Lydia is great. So why Lydia? You know, she had some powers, but she wasn't like as consumed by them as everybody else. And I feel like I just loved her sort of sarcasm and her her attitude and like how she was just a half step removed from everything. Um, that so it was, she was able to be the observer. And kind of, you know, I don't know, the Greek chorus a little bit, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Another question for both you and Will. Mm-hmm. You edited Will's episode Ouroboros. Yeah. Was there any collaboration between the two of you? And did the writer of an episode ever have any early views of an episode to give input? Good question for Will. I we we talked some. But we didn't get we didn't get in the weeds too much on it. Yeah, yeah, for that episode, that was my very first episode, and I was still the writer's assistant at that time. So I was pulling, I was basically doing two full time jobs at that moment. And uh, because of the nature of Teen Wolf, because there is just so little time for anything, so it's like, <laughs> hope we got it on the day. Now <laughs> it's up to the editors to make it good. And then it moves on from there. I wish, though, that would have been fun because that's like the one part of the show I never really got to dabble in just because of, again, lack of just no time for anything. And there are so few writers to be in the editing suite and see scenes come together. Yeah, it's it's funny. On most shows, writers don't get to come in the editing room that much. Like, Because usually, yeah, the editor will do the first pass. Then the director does a pass. Then, then, then the showrunner comes in. Now, sometimes they'll let the writer come in at that point, and you can do some stuff with it. And I've worked on shows where they, where they, but in in conjunction. But by then, the schedule is starting to pace up, and there's not a lot of time. And so, you you know, 
But while you're doing that first cut often as an editor, you have the writers kind of sniffing around. Um, trying, but but by the but per the DGA rules, you're you're supposed to that first cut is supposed to be the director's cut, uh-huh. which is the idea. But obviously, you know, when you're when you're edit bay is maybe just a few feet from the writer's office, they can hear you editing. Oh yeah. It, you know? oh yeah. Did you ever get to spend time on the two set um, while talking about like how close you were to it? I mean, a, a little bit. I mean, I, I was there for short periods of time. And I think when I first came there, it might've been between half seasons. I think it was like, mm-hmm. it was, I, there was a 3A and a 3B. Mm-hmm. And I think I was there. Um, I did two episodes and one was just one that had fallen behind and the schedule on 3A. And then I did the premiere of 3B because everybody was so tired. <laughs> yeah, some of the editors were like, "Can we have a week off?" And they were like, "Well, we'll just have Kevin do that episode, and then he'll." You know. And so I was there in between, but then I was there when they were shooting that premiere. That to me was the fun part: was that the office was right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked on shows where you're on the lot with the show, and I've worked on shows where you're here, and the set is in New York or Vancouver or somewhere else. But on Teen Wolf, like you'd walk in to go to your edit bay and you'd be like, oh, I can't go here because they've turned it into the hospital set. So I actually (laughs) need to walk around to get to my office because there's going to be a fight right in front of my office, you know, or they would like black out your windows because they're like, well, we're getting light bleed from your office and onto the set. Like that's how close, or sometimes you'd have to turn down what you were cutting because they could hear it on set, Uh, which is amazing. And then we would eat at the cafeteria. So you'd get to have lunch and you'd sit in those outdoor tables. And that was basically the high school cafeteria. So that was fun. Yeah, no, it was just fantastic that it's like you just you walk into the building. And as you like go like to get to post, you have to like walk through all the other departments. And so it's like, oh, here's what our department's up to today. And oh, look, there's Barbara through that door right there. You know, and, oh, special effects is right over here. So it's it was just great. Yeah. And the, the the front of the office was the exterior for the hospital. Right? Yeah, I think. for yeah. part of the and hospital. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. We very much use all the parts of the Buffalo. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, our show. Sure. We had no it. money, you know? And so it's like, hey, we need to be outside the hospital. And and Joe, our exec producer, is like, well, oh, the front of the office. Just put up a sign that yeah. says hospital. Done. That's how it works. <laughs> put an ambulance yeah. out there. And everyone's like, yeah, it's a hospital. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it works. It does, though. It, it, that's no, it that's all great. it takes. You know, and I mean that, and again, that comes from from doing Roger Corman films, where it's like every yeah. film was made for exactly seventy five dollars, and <laughs> you have to know ex- how to spend all that money and get everything out of each penny. So yeah, yeah, it's, I mean it's fun. It's just it was such a compact production. It was it was cool. So how did you transition from editing to directing shows like The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow? Even before I came. To, to Teen Wolf, I had already been doing, I'd always bounce back and forth between editing and directing, uh, starting on like a bunch of low budget stuff uh, in the 90s. And then I was also directing on Top Model. And then on Chuck, I had directed an episode. And so when I was on Teen Wolf, I was actually sort of like in between some directing assignments. I had started directing on Heart of Dixie. Nice. I was only like a couple episodes a year and I had a lot of downtime and not a lot of money. And so so, so it was great to, to get an invitation to come in and be like, oh, you, you don't have to be here for the whole season. You just have to do two episodes or an episode. I said, great, I'll do it. So that was the, what was going on with my career at that point. But I still hadn't picked up enough momentum that it was mm-hmm. like a regular thing. And then I remember I left after doing your episode. That was why I left to go do... Legends of Tomorrow to cut the pilot for Legends of Tomorrow. That's awesome. And um, and when I went to that show, I was sort of like, hey, I want to direct. And 
they gave me an episode the second season and then things went well. And then I ended up uh, directing a couple of episodes the next year in The Flash. And then I became the producing director on uh, Legends for the last four seasons. That's awesome. So, uh, That's so great. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I stole I stole a lot of directorial moves from people at Team Wolf, like Russell. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we had good teachers, Russell and Tim and oh, and yeah. then Joe and and all the people who got to direct. I mean, we had it was a show. It was an embarrassment of riches of yeah. talent on that yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, do you have any fun stories from working on Teen Wolf? I mean, this one's maybe a little too nuts and bolts, but I remember there was a scene. I want to say it must have been for the. The season three B premiere, which is what's what's that one? It's um, anchors. Anchors. So it's in anchors, and they're doing all those the, all those cool dream sequences mm-hmm. within dream sequences within dream sequences. Which I was just, I mean, I was constantly blown away by Russell's directing and all that stuff. I just, and there was one dream sequence that's Allison, and she comes into the morgue, mm-hmm. and then she opens the morgue drawer, and and all that, and um, and he shot the morgue thing, but he was missing a close up of her. But I was like, all you needed was one close up, like. You couldn't get like you couldn't have just zoomed in and just like changed the lens. You were right there, like you could. And he's like, "No, no, no well, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it." And I was like, "Why didn't he get this shot?" And then like a week later, he's like, "Oh, I, I went. I picked up. I picked up the things you need for the morgue thing." I was like, "Okay, great." And I opened the bin, and it was like twelve shots, and they were beautiful shots with like drips <laughs> of water, and, and they did so much to build the mood. And I was like, "Oh, I just, I just learned this lesson where I was like, oh, yes, you could have like." check the box and finish the scene and moved on. And that would have been it. And it would have been fine. Or you could have done the Russell way, which is he made it a really special scene. And I was like, oh, he fought really hard to get all these details in there. And that spoke volumes of, of his. Russell puts the camera places that I don't, you, you wouldn't think to put the camera. And, yeah. but then also with Russell, where it's like, it, it's like he do, he'll do like five masters of a scene from different angles. And it's like, we got to yeah. punch in. We It's time to, you know, it's like yeah, these are all yeah. beautiful, perfect painterly shots, and it's like this is like a three-second shot. But he gives, <laughs> yeah. you, but he give, yeah. but he'll give you like all these different versions of it, and it's inc- and each one's incredible. It's three it's seconds like, of art, Will. Yeah, yes, I know, I know. I, I'm not no, complaining. You, I didn't have to. I didn't. I wasn't producing that or editing that. I'm just like yeah. it's Russell. No, but as an editor, I'd rather have more choices like that. I, I mean, I like. I was. I was. I'm. I was admiring it. I mean, I don't have the guts to go when I'm directing to to fight for as much, but it, it did give me a little bit more confidence to fight if I had a good idea. I'm like, oh, I have to find a way to get that in there. Yeah. So as we've mentioned, you've done directing and producing and taken on a lot of different uh, roles for a project. What's your favorite aspect of working on a show? I think I like the producing, the producing director role best, uh, which is you get to be involved with the show creatively through every episode. So you get to sort of, I mean, maybe your name isn't on there as director, but you, you you have a sense of ownership of everything, which is really nice. And I just like the consistency of like setting the tone for how the crew was going to work on, on Legends and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then just working, like we had a lot of new directors or younger directors come into our show and to be able to work with them. And, and I mean, to me, the best part of directing is collaborating. And this was in the producing role is, is you're, you get to be a collaborator with everyone on every episode. And that's like, you, you can't beat that. I love that answer. So how would you compare Teen Wolf to working on something like Legends of Tomorrow? Well, I would say the Teen Wolf as an editor was tricky. It was hard. Like there was a lot of footage on those scenes. Like you would get, and I think I had a day where I had 13 hours of dailies. Holy God. Um, 
which yeah. is just, you know, and as an editor, you, you, I like to watch everything before I start cutting. But if I have 13 hours, I'm like, how am I going to watch all of this? And some of that is unfair. Some of that's 13 hours because they would shoot things at like super slow motion. So maybe on set, they were only shooting for like, you know, five minutes. But then when you stretch that out times five, and then maybe there's four cameras on it. Well, then that's how you get to these insane numbers like that. Yeah. But, um, but so I found that Teen Wolf actually took a lot a lot of work to get to that first cut. It took a lot, uh, a lot of energy, more than I was used to on shows. But then I thought that the Team Wolf also res- respected your your stamp you were putting on it in a way that was really nice. So, what was it like working with Jeff Davis? It's great. I mean, look, I I I would love to know how Jeff's mind works. I con- I would constantly. I mean, the thing I love about Team Wolf is that it is a teen show, you know, I've worked on a lot of CW shows and a lot of them are very concerned with spoon feeding information because they're like, well, it's kids watching the show. And Jeff seemed to have this confidence that like, no, like confusion is our, is our superpower. Like if people feed on it. Yeah. yeah, And and I love that. I mean, as a fan of like David Lynch or those kind of things, like I was like, yes, this is great. Like I'm in this scene and I don't know where I am or who I am or who, what's going on or what dimension this is. And that stuff to me was the fact that he had the confidence to do that. I just, I just loved. And, um, and he, I don't, I wish I knew how that, uh, how it worked, but man. Oh yeah. We bottle that and sell it. My God. Right. And no one else is really doing it. Like I felt like Teen Wolf did it so well. And I'm surprised there aren't more shows that then copy that and sort of, but everyone's afraid. When you were on The Flash, did you get to work with Eric Wallace? He's a Teen Wolf all-star. Oh, I remember Eric. Uh, yeah, I, I I remember Eric from working on, on Teen Wolf. And then um, and then when I was working on Legends of Tomorrow, we we were on the same hallway as mm-hmm. The Flash, uh, the post-production of the writers. So I'd run into him in the hall and stuff like that. And then when I was directing on The Flash, it was before he took over as showrunner. But yeah. I think that was, it was in the days where he was starting to, to have more and more responsibility on the show. So nice. I had a few meetings with him where, you know, but it was... Um, but he wasn't the main, it was still Todd Helbling at that point. But yeah, but Eric's great. Oh yeah, Eric's fantastic. Probably one of the best people I've ever met. Who on the Teen Wolf cast or crew would make the best alpha? I'm going to say Alyssa Clark. Have you guys had Alyssa on the show? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Got her on multiple times. So fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say Alyssa. I mean, she, I was impressed with how, how much sway she had over there and and how much how much of a voice she was in the show and then in post she was she had very strong opinions that we all sort of were in line with but you know she was not afraid to express so it was fun for me i'd worked with her on other shows but i'd never worked with a show where she was kind of like above me and that was exciting that was fun fantastic yeah she's great she is a she's a return to beacon hills all-star so yep. he's been on multiple times. <laughs> okay. Which was your favorite episode of Teen Wolf to edit? I think it's probably the first one I did, which was called The Overlooked, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was in the mm-hmm. hospital one. Such yep. a good one. Yep. It was a great episode. Yeah. Very good. I mean, and I'll say there's a couple of reasons. One is because when I came in to cut it, I think they'd already shot the whole episode and all of the dailies were just sitting on an avid waiting to get cut. Oh, when nice. You're an editor and you get hired on a show, usually you know, you come in and you just have the first day's dailies. And then on day two, you cut day two's dailies. So every day you don't get to choose what you're going to cut. It's whatever comes in. And that episode, they've handed me this thing and they're like, here's all this footage. We need to cut an episode. And I was like, oh, this feels so different. And I got to just go in and, and do it. And um, and I thought that episode 
turned out great. I loved it. It was super tense. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's so interesting that that would be the first episode you cut because that's very much a bottle episode that takes place in the hospital. And it's like Teen Wolf is known for big, grand, sweeping shots that are outside with moonlight and forest and running around. And then it's like you come in, it's like, oh, is this what you'll do? You're just on stages all the time. It's like, no, (laughs) not at all. Yeah, but it was like, but Russell did a good job of like every floor of the hospital had a different look to it. So it was easy to know where you were. And then I know that like, it was an episode that I think production wise, there were a lot of schedule issues with it. So like, I think a lot of other people like Tim had directed some scenes for it and Christian had directed some scenes for it. So I remember every, every time I get a slate, I'd be like, that's someone else's name. Who's directing this episode. <laughs> but it was, it was all through Russell's head and it was yeah. really a, a smart episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. And the performance from, was it Haley? Was that Haley? Mm-hmm. Haley Webb. Oh man. She knocks out of the park on that one. Oh Yeah. She was so fun to talk to as well. Yeah, yeah we had a great talk with her. With her. She was yeah. fantastic. If you could be any Teen Wolf creature, what would you be? I don't know. I gotta come up with a different answer. Because everyone wants to be a werewolf. No one wants to be Canima if you want to pick that. Yeah, no one wants to be <laughs> yeah, We have not had a single person say Canima. In fact, we've no. had multiple people specify not Canima before they yeah. decide what they actually want to be. I don't want to be a were-coyote. Um, I don't, that's for sure. Um, you know, I like the um, the I like the ones from your episode. Well, the, the those like weird, creepy dream doctors from oh the, the dread the doctors, dread the doctors, dread doctors. That's it. I like those guys. I just like the look of them. I thought they were cool. Yes, and, uh, they have a yeah. fantastic look. Very um, steampunk. Yeah, very steampunk. Yeah. And it, it, for me, it feels very outside of Teen Wolf, but also Teen Wolf. Like it feels like it could be in another show. It's like oh, those are Doctor Who villains. And you're like yeah, yeah. That's a <laughs> that was a great season. You know, but he's like no, that's Teen Wolf. You're like yes. So good. Yes. Yeah. That is probably why I like them is because they're more Doctor Who than Teen Wolf. Yeah. I, I'm not a big like supernatural mythology kind of person. So uh so yeah. So that's why I was drawn to them. And I like I love that they had that like origin story with the was it with the book or was it like there was like the the pulp fiction there's like the pulpy kind of novel that was written about them. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. I, I loved all that stuff. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. yeah. No, that was a lot of fun. I actually wrote those pages. That was one oh, of the nice. first things I got to do was write because we knew Scott was going to be flipping through it at some point. So we, you got to have yeah. stuff. You can't just have like Laura Ipsum on there anymore because yeah. everything's shot in high nope. def and you can zoom in and see what it's saying. So and I had people to write, will slide yeah, like frame by frame. Exactly. Frame by frame. So I wrote like a fake chapter of that pulp novel. And yeah, that was great. You got to finish the book. Gotta yeah, God, I wish <laughs> that'd be so cool. Well, Kevin, do you have any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Uh, something I'm about to start, but I'm it's too early to talk about it. But I would say people should watch Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, I'm gonna, if nice. I'm going to promote something. It's on Netflix. It's very really nice. fun. It's, you heard uh, it, folks. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not just a superhero show. If you like weird, if you like surprising, Legends of Tomorrow is a show for you. Like, very nice. You do like we would do different genres every week, like a musical, or you know, we did we did some horror stuff. We had a werewolf on it. Um, we did. That wasn't. What was it? Was it a werewolf? Or was it uh, a copay? Oh, I'm not which familiar like a, with that. Which is like a. It's like a Hawaiian werewolf legend. Oh, oh that's awesome. That's cool. We did that for a season. With the, that's cool. Yeah. Who 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 gets who gets transported in time uh, to like 1960s Mexico City, and he becomes a famous Mexican wrestler. What? Yeah. That's, that's, 
That's that's awesome. You've sold me on the show. I yes, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, yes. we hope thank you have you. A, a wonderful rest of your day. Okay, and we'll talk soon. You too. Thanks. Wolfies, we had a great time talking with Kevin, but now it's back to spoilers. So this was the first time I noticed the void-looking image on Styles' wall by the door. Seems appropriate. I actually wish that it had only been in his dream and not his waking world wall. Oh, you mean the black spaghetti monster? <laughs> I prefer void because, you know. Yeah, yeah, void is good. I think it would have been more interesting if it had turned out that Lydia had also been part of this dream. Like on her end, she actually experienced it too. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Dreamwalking, like Catherine Heigl's character on Roswell. And I think it could make sense for her as a banshee. Yeah, if you conceive of sleep as a kind of smaller death, death is her realm. She has the power to see into that realm. So if sleep is an in-between state, I could see that fitting into the Banshee mythos that Lydia can navigate these spaces that exist beyond the conscious realm. Maybe sleep is part of Bardo. Yeah, I think that could have really been interesting to see play out. Going off of that, we know that the symptoms that Scott, Stiles, and Allison are experiencing come from the ritual where they died and came back. Do you guys think that Allison is having visions of Kate because she's somehow able to sense that Kate too died and came back, that she's not really dead anymore? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Maybe. I mean, Allison has believed that Kate was dead since the end of season one. We know that isn't the case, but this is the first time we've seen Allison dream about Kate. What's changed is Allison has since died and come back too. And while Scott and Styles are also hallucinating, they're not hallucinating anyone in particular. It's a very good theory. I kind of wish that they had done more with Allison basically not being able to fight this season because she's so afraid that it'll turn out to be a dream and she's about to murder Lydia, like in the woods with her arrow or in the scene we saw earlier with the ring dagger. That would have been really fun. Yeah, it kind of annoys me that she does keep picking up weapons when it, putting people at risk. Exactly. That should have been part of the season that she isn't able to help fight because on more than one occasion, she has drawn her weapon. Well, I, I guess with the ring dagger, it's not exact. She, she kind of looks to see if it's really there or if it was just in her dream. But she very easily, if she hadn't woken up, could have grabbed the ring dagger to go after Kate and ended up stabbing Lydia. And we know she almost killed Lydia with the arrow. So I feel like that should have been part of her story this season. It's also just a bummer that Lydia's role, at least in this point in the season, is really just to be on the periphery of Allison's experience. Like, I think it would have been cool if instead of Isaac catching the arrow, Lydia had screamed and the sound waves had blocked the arrow. Even if it didn't become a regular thing that she can do until she delves deeper into her powers later in the show, it would have been a glimpse of what's to come and it would add to the mythos of the Banshee. We found out that she was a Banshee in 3A, but we don't really get any more detail about her abilities for a while after that. Speaking of glimpses of what's to come, I always forget Malia is introduced so early. I forgot her addiction was a two-parter. I forgot she had a sister. So she's a Hale. Do you think that her sister was named Tia or Leah? <laughs> Burn. I like how Styles mentions in this episode that he hates coyotes. It all feels like a little nod to the hate to love trope, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Aw, that's cute. I'm confused about the car crash case. Don't they later say that the desert wolf shot up the car? Yes. The police should have noticed that. 
Exactly. I do remember at the time being like, I feel like we shouldn't do that because we never mentioned bullet holes in a previous season. Yeah, Slinsky is not that bad at his job. Right. Doesn't make the sheriff look good. Speaking of things making the sheriff look bad, the investigation. <laughs> I liked your idea, Kate, that Raphael is looking into Styles potentially being a criminal and his dad by extension for covering that up, especially because Styles is actually the villain this season. Yeah, that would have been so cool, right? Like Raphael spends the whole season being like, it's Styles. He's committing crimes. And everyone's like, shut up, Raphael. We hate you. But then technically, he's right. <laughs> I do like the reveal of Styles as the Nagitsune, the way we have it in this season. But what could have been cool is if Raphael comes to arrest Styles, listing off all the circumstantial evidence as Scott is like, it's not Styles. And then Styles stabs Raphael. <laughs> oh my God. That would have been interesting. Yeah. I would have really been into that. So we touched on the introduction of Malia in this episode. Let's talk about the introduction of Kira. Again, as I have never said before, Kira is my favorite character. I remember vividly, like I've loved the Kira character since the point in time. She was just a twinkle in her father's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I just know, you know, because at the beginning of every season. Because it should be balls. <laughs> at the beginning of every season, Jeff comes in and on the first day of the writer's room, he already has ideas for the season. And he was like, hey, I want to do some Japanese mythology this season. And then he was like, oh, and also there's going to be a new character named Kira. And I was just like, oh, go on. And then we just figured out who the character was. And I would just loved her and loved her even more. And then we cast Arden and she's perfect in the role. So ah, love this character. Love her family. I really noticed this time around probably just because this is the first time I've watched it since we spoke to Barbara, Mm -hmm. but I really noticed how Kira's look is distinct from the other characters Mm -hmm. right away and tells us some stuff about her character. Like she dresses very stylishly, but it's also kind of nerdy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like there's a, an embrace of geekiness to her style. It's still really well fitted and the silhouettes are great. But it does have that little, yep, I'm a big nerd. <laughs> yeah, I think she does have some like Marvel leggings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Superhero leggings. Yeah, there's a bit of grunge geek to her. Like mm-hmm. you can see some of her skirts coming from like Hot Topic. Totally. Yeah, so skipping to the end of the episode, I don't like, it's always bugged me just how low Peter's arms are hanging in the torture scene at the end. You know, And, and I know why. It's because in the next episode, we're going to cut off one of his fingers and the actress who plays Mama Calaveras is is maybe a little bit on the shorter side. So her reaching her arm up to cut off his finger wouldn't have looked as good, but it just feels weird. Well, it'd be that- hilarious if she'd brought over a step stool. She was like, they have to listen to her awkwardly like drag, like, oh my this, God. Like, stand <laughs> here across like the concrete floor to like. It actually, and- that actually could have been a, kind of a fun moment. And they do go for a some dark humor in this scene but if she brings a stool over and peter's just like oh are you gonna get a stool oh that's so cute and just being really patronizing and shitty yeah while derek is there just looking like i'm so mad that i'm here (laughs) with peter and she's unfolding her stool she's like getting it in the right spot standing up on it and he's like, oh, is that better? Can you see me better? You know, are we at eye level now? And then she just looks at him and is like shing yeah and chops his finger off yeah no, that would have been fun. i enjoyed that that would have been really fun i agree the placement is awkward and he kind of looks like he's in the stocks you know? yeah they should be throwing vegetables at him and stuff like that 
You're right. Calling him a witch. Peter's one thing. I don't care about Peter, but rarely have we had so little Derek. He gets one little happy moment with saving Cora's life at the end of 3A, and then it's right back to the torture and suffering. That's yes. Derek role on the show. Very true. But also, where the f*** is Chris Argent? Oh, shit. You're right. He's somewhere. Do we get an explanation for why he's not in this? Oh, no, because he's not in the next so. episode either. Yeah, he doesn't come into like the third episode. Well, but I mean, do you rem- do you remember do whether not. he says any, like, is he coming back from something? He's like, man, that line at Dairy Queen was long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do not remember. I don't remember there being an explanation. So this is one of the few times in the episode that we get a mention of Claudia Stolinski as we find out. Mm-hmm the late mother of styles where they talk about putting flowers on her grave. But I was just curious that that they kind of bring her up because later the season is when Styles starts to wonder if he has the same disease that she died from. Yeah. So they want to start like kind of talking about her a little bit at the start of the season. They do also make a connection. Like that's the sort of, Sherlock Holmes moment that he has or the I guess the American reinterpretations of Sherlock Holmes like house where there's always like some unrelated thing that that makes the synapses fire and now he gets it Mm -hmm. that's like that's what this piece of information is to Styles in the next episode when he puts things together about the doll right right but yeah I think it makes sense to bring her up again since they do talk about her in a way that's actually very closely connected to the plot and not just a character element that these two characters have lost. Yeah. Someone. Absolutely. Gotta start planting those seeds early. I guess it could just be a random date that they're putting it on there. I didn't know if it's necessarily an important date, like, you know, Claudia's birthday or the day she died or something that they're putting flowers there because I don't think they specify. But I don't know. I just, it bothers me that Sheriff doesn't really pay him much attention whenever Silas is trying to talk to him about it. And we never see them actually go together and do it. Mm-hmm. Like Sheriff has become hyper-focused on trying to solve these old cases. But then once it happens with Malia, I guess he just feels like resolution. Like there's just, he's resolved enough by fixing that one case. I think yeah. it would have been interesting to like, he continues to be hyper-focused throughout the season on trying to look at these old cases. And that's part of the reason why he doesn't knows what's going on with Styles. That'd be cool. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That, that would be cool. I feel like if they wanted to do that though, they would have needed not to have the scene where he comes in and comforts styles because he then the, the screaming yeah because he he then is asking styles like are you okay are you sure you're okay yeah, i think it could progress more as the season goes on like once oh. they solve the malia case like because instead like once they solve it he just kind of just seems like okay well i did the one thing so that's it's all good but i think it would have been like he's like oh my gosh i really was able to like reunite this girl with her family it's a good thing i looked at this what else can i help with by looking at these old cases mm-hmm. and so he becomes just so focused on those that he doesn't even really pay much attention to styles and what styles is going through because he just thinks there's more I could be doing by looking at these old cases. Yeah, that would be interesting. And like Styles, before they found Malia, Styles believed he just wanted to solve one last case mm-hmm. in case he gets impeached. But solving the case of Malia's disappearance has the opposite right. effect where it's like now he's even more obsessed with his job. Yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. Based on all the... F- fanfic i've both read and written he then has to go to derek for comfort because like there's nobody else left 
obviously. I kind of feel like, couldn't the sheriff just say they wanted to do like a new search with set dogs? Could he have a item of her clothing? Yes, but now hear me out. They didn't do that because of hilarity that's about to ensue. Okay, then. Also, speaking of things, I realized that um, why is Stalinsky bringing up murder to the dad that it could have been a potential murder? Because I'm like, what if you're right? What if a werewolf killed your family and drug your daughter away? They're never going to trial. Like, what are you going to like just later on be like, oh, yeah, we killed this guy, Franklin. He died in a shootout, though, but it was him. <laughs> There's no way to have justice here. Like actual I, justice. That's not vigilante. Alternatively, alternatively, he could be wrong. And if he's wrong, or he could be wrong. You also shouldn't tell him that. So it's kind of like whether he's right or wrong, telling him it could be a murder is just a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think he should have just been like, hey, there's been like new developments about maybe like the area and we're going to do another like grid search with dogs could we have an item of your clothing yeah and maybe you know henry might be like oh hasn't been too much time but like he probably wouldn't ask a lot of questions about feeling like that's not gonna work i just think it would have been like a much smoother conversation that way Right. And especially because he was telling Stalinsky about having had a major problem with coyotes, because Mm -hmm. then he could just be like, yeah, we're actually working with the Wildlife Service to try to control the coyote population because Mm -hmm. they keep coming into where humans are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're getting funds for like a, a deeper search of the area. So I just thought if you gave me something, I could try to give you more closure than you have. Yeah. 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 That would have been a whole lot better. And then he could say, you know, I can't promise anything. And if we aren't able to find her remains still, mm-hmm. then at least you'll know that we're working on the coyote problem, which I see is something that you're trying to deal with. So Yeah. No, absolutely. But it was more dramatic to do it this way. It was more yeah. dramatic. And he, again, yeah, they could have even had, maybe he just still refuses to help by that. They have to do like the break-in. Sheriff has to go back and distract him so they could do the break-in thing. But it seems dumb to start that way. Yeah. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 14, More Bad Than Good. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.